written, revised, and reorganized over the course of more than a thousand years, Christianity's collection of scriptures is one of the most popular sacred texts in human history. Western popular culture is full of references to its characters and its storylines. For better and for worse, the Bible is still profoundly influential in the 21st century. As a sacred text, the Bible has been carefully studied and interpreted by Judeo-Christian traditions since its inception. But it still may be surprising to some that the texts themselves can often be challenging and even profoundly disturbing. With prophets comparing their God's relationship to Israel with an abusive husband assaulting his wife. With God depicted commanding the complete and utter destruction of an entire people and even their property. With people praying for the opportunity to crack open the skulls of their enemies' children and more. While these texts are often outliers from a narrative encouraging love, tolerance, and justice, they are still present within the canon. This is Logosish. Today we take time to explore how faithful people continue to wrestle with the Bible's most violent and horrifying texts. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. We are excited to be doing another episode today. I am joined this morning by Reverend Sarah Relliford and Reverend Garrett Roca, and I am, of course, Reverend John Hoyne. How's everything going, guys? Everything's going great. It's a great Wednesday morning and uh, lots of rain in Florida, but we're making it through. We had voting yesterday, and uh, that was an adventure. It was it was good to see folks on campus again, which was is a strange sight. Yeah, things are going great. We, uh, as you know, John, I just figured out how to do captions on my recorded sermons, which is one more thing to do every week. But uh, I think it's going to pay off. One more thing out of a number of one more things to do every week, right? Right in this uh, time of COVID. This strange time. <laughs> it's really remarkable the number of um, audio and video skills that we have acquired over the past few weeks. I feel like we really just need to go into business doing that. Yeah, or that seminaries need to start teaching that sort of thing. That's true. That's true. Perhaps our guest today will have some feedback on that. Garrett, you're talking about rain and voting. What What's the deal with voting? What were you voting on? Well, voting, uh, we had our church is one of the local precincts for the Florida primary. So we had the voting machines and folks from the community come in to, to cast their ballot uh, for the coming election. So it was, uh, this has been a local precinct for probably 30 years or so. So it's a longstanding building in the community. So they were they they had been concerned ever since I got here if we were going to even allow them in the building because of the pandemic. So they were very grateful yesterday that we allowed them to come and use the facilities. So that's awesome. That's really really cool. All right. Well, it sounds like everybody's doing well. So why don't we go ahead and introduce our guest for today? Today we're talking about violence in the Bible with Dr. Brent Driggers, who is professor of New Testament at Lutheran. Theological Southern Seminary. I think I said all those words in the right order. Dr. Driggers, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. And you did get all the words right. I, you know, <laughs> I remember the acronym and then I say, as I start to say it aloud, I'm like, that those, they don't sound like they're in the right order to me. No, they are. Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary, LTSS for short. Okay, awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, how did you get here? Who are you? All that good stuff. Yeah. So like you said, professor of New Testament at, well, now say LTSS, we're the, the seminary of Lenore Ryan University, which is a Lutheran university in North Carolina. So we're separated by about a two hour drive, but it, it's a workable and increasingly more productive relationship. One of seven ELCA seminaries, uh, that being kind of the mainstream Lutheran flavor, uh, the only ELCA seminary in the South and the only John, you may know this, or you should, the only seminary in South Carolina that's approved by the University Senate of the United Methodist Church to train Methodist, United Methodist pastors, so we're proud of that. 
Yeah, I teach New Testament. I teach a required course, required courses in New Testament survey, interpreting the Gospels. I teach electives in individual Gospels, uh, Mark and John most frequently. I teach courses in uh, historical Jesus and violence in scripture, biblical theology. So that's kind of my thing. I, I preach at churches at invitation, consider myself a church theologian, uh, as it were, married with three boys. <laughs> yeah, so ha- happy, to, happy to be here talking with you all. Yeah, that's really awesome. What drew you to New Testament studies? I think that's a whole another podcast, but I, I think it's, um, I think I just found I had a knack for um, reading texts and kind of sitting with texts. And I found it fun talking about texts, whether it's a story or a book or a letter. And I was an English major in college. And I think there was there was kind of a Venn diagram effect that happened when I encountered narrative criticism of the Gospels in seminary, and just a lot of a lot of my passions for 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 narrative kind of came out. Uh, even passions I maybe didn't know were there. My first love was theology, which which might be, and so I've always considered myself, I suppose, first and foremost, a theologian. I kind of butt against the 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 disciplinary distinctions that we still sometimes use in seminaries. So while my business card uh, says professor of New Testament, I'd like to think of myself as a, I think, I think my Twitter, I think my Twitter profile says theologian, if that tells you anything. (laughs) It doesn't say New Testament scholar. I don't think that's unusual for Bible professors though. Um, You know, I was advised by Brent Strawn when I was at Candler and he often talked about how he should have been a psychologist and and a lot of his work and a lot of the books he writes are uh, sort of psychology adjacent, a lot of sort of like happiness in the Bible and stuff like that. A biblical studies is, is really just an interesting conglomeration of different disciplines. And it just runs the gamut in terms of what people are really interested in. I mean, you can you could spend your life pouring over papyri under a microscope, uh, trying to decide one textual variant in Romans, <laughs> right? Or you could do a kind of full-blown kind of post-colonialist, social justice-oriented readings on the on the other end of the spectrum i don't know if that's a spectrum per se but it's just two very different ways of being a biblical scholar right yeah and uh, my work in the inner city when i was up at candler i served at like in a street mission and uh, one of the volunteers or social workers there said that the chaplains had the hardest job because they had to do all the social work aspects but also be a spiritual guide so he's like you have to be a social worker you have to be a parent you have to be a pastor you have to be an advocate you have to be a student all at the same time so he's like i have extra prayers for you uh, Mm -hmm. over the summer but yeah definitely interdisciplinary and just seeing how the scripture is not just text but a living breathing part of the human experience There's no doubt that the pastors and ministers on the ground are wearing the most hats and juggling the most balls. And while I try not to keep things academic, I have the privilege of sitting with students in more kind of quiet spaces and reflecting about what ministry could be in conversation with texts and don't have to wear quite as many hats in, in that sense. Uh, except for my involvement in, in church itself, I suppose. Yeah, so let's, since we're on the topic of text, why don't we dive into our main topic today, which is violence in the Bible. And I'd like to start out by just asking a very simple question, and that's, there's violence in the Bible? Yeah, right. My first memory of scripture is violent in the sense that it was the story of David and Goliath. And I had the, I had one of those book on tape mechanisms that might predate you guys I don't know but you know you had the cassette tape and you you played the tape and it would cue you when to turn the page of the book we should revive those actually it's like a built-in babysitter 
Um, yeah, I definitely, I do remember those or some version of those. And I sometimes share that story in class that that's, that's my first memory of scripture. I mean, I didn't know it was scripture. I just knew it as a story and a really cool story, right? You got the little guy who just rocks up and says, I'll take that, I'll take that big dude. And, you know, the sling, it was so cool, right? The, the stones and the big guy goes falling and, you know, I don't, I just see it as a cool story. And it obviously is a really cool story. I'll, I'll probably never back down from, <laughs> from that claim, but it's, but it's violent. It's death. It's murder. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's murder in the context of war or holy war. But I guess my point is it's right underneath our nose, right? And we, we often don't take the time simply to ask the question, wait, is that violent? And, and I think too often, and the reason conversations like this are important or classes like a class in scripture and violence, violence in scripture is important is because when the violence does register with someone, it, it, may, it may be at a more subconscious harmful level insofar as one may have a kind of visceral reaction and not understand, maybe because they are themselves victims of violence or victims of a certain way of, of reading scripture for that matter. But yeah, there's violence in scripture from, gee whiz, from the flood to, uh, well, I guess we could even back up further uh, to Cain and Abel, the flood, conquest of Canaan, Babylonian conquest, all kinds of violence. And in particular, there's a lot of divinely sanctioned violence or violence that, that God is portrayed as doing, right? Yeah. Often for reasons that we might kind of take a step back and think, oh, maybe that's, that's not great, <laughs> especially if we're holding, you know, God to some kind of moral standard that resembles, you know, the moral standard that we hope we are going to be held toward. Yeah, and there's oftentimes, I think, a disconnect, I would argue, a disconnect between, and this is a whole kind of theological discussion, as you know, we've, we've had it before, John, but um, a certain moral world that we want to inhabit, standard, if you will, but the character of God in Scripture doesn't have to abide by those standards, right? So it kind of raises the question, is that, is that appropriate? Where does that push us to next? Does it push us to a conversation about how God has a different kind of morality, or does it push us into the realm of at least wondering about the texts themselves and what's happening in the texts and who God in God's self, as it were, might be vis-a-vis -vis the God as depicted in Scripture, understanding that obviously Scripture plays a, a, an essential, the essential role in helping us understand who God is, but... Um, but it raises some questions, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying that it kind of provokes us in some sense to evaluate how we read the Bible before we really get into the actual content of the words and the stories themselves. Yeah, I think reading scripture is never just a kind of pristine, tell us what to read, by, or tell us what to believe, Bible, right? There's always, I think, a, a kind of interaction going on, and, and there has been since the beginning of Christianity, and even uh, in the church's own uh, Jewish roots, uh, a kind of interaction between tradition and scripture. And, you know, you, you United Methodists have that really helpful, you would know this better than me, but is it a, is it a stool? Uh, they call it a quadrilateral <laughs> quadrilateral right yeah but it started out as a stool maybe i don't know yeah but you you guys are familiar with how scripture tradition experience what's the other one reason yeah kind of all kind of inform our our, our theology and our life but i do want to point out that there is violence your, your question is there divine violence is helpful but there is you know, there are different kinds of violence, right? There, there, is, there is violence that is condemned in Scripture. Um, there's violence that uh, humans do that's condemned. There's violence that humans do that God sanctions. There's violence that God does that is implicitly sanctioned. So it kind of runs the, the spectrum. Yeah, I think one of the a memory that I was talking about with John this morning was we took a Third, or in our third year of seminary, we took a class about metaphor in the Bible. And one day in class, we talked about Hosea chapter two, where God is projected as a, an abusive spouse. And I was 
this is year three of seminary. So I'd been engaging scripture for quite a long time. And we left and walked to the parking lot that day. And I was very, very upset. And I was like, why am I part of this even? This religion that would consider this piece of scripture canonical, um, which is an extreme sort of response. But uh, it, it had never come up in church before for me. I was, again, three years into seminary and had not encountered this piece of scripture from Hosea 2. I don't even think we talked about it in the Old Testament. Yeah, I think we did, but it was a it was one of those things where when we were in doing basic Old Testament classes, it was, you know, you you did a huge chunk in a day, and right. so it was almost a gloss, like right, yeah. Uh, and, and I don't know why that piece in particular was so difficult. I think it was just because God was being a real jerk in that one, <laughs> which is a, a crazy thing to say as a Christian, but. I don't think it's so crazy, and I think we're going to get into that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Let's but that's how seminary, unfortunately, goes um, a, a lot of the time. And I don't know if there's any way of getting around the just the kind of drinking by the fire hose, just kind of big chunks, and you move on and 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 pray that with some good in class discussion and some good contextual ed departments, you can integrate that. <laughs> somehow. But yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a book now by an African-American writer named Renita Weems called Battered Love. And she gives a kind of womanist analysis. And you may have read portions of this in that class. I don't know. She gives, if, I, if memory serves, a, a womanist analysis of some of the rape and domestic violence metaphors in the Old Testament prophets. Mm. And it's, 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 easy to, it's, it's easy to fall on the fact that something is a metaphor as a kind of license for saying it's okay because it's just a metaphor. But what that book uh, taught me probably better than any book is that metaphors really, nothing is ever merely a metaphor. Uh, metaphors are, um, we, we choose our metaphors. And if, we, and if we choose metaphors of violence, you know, we, we kind of have to, to, to live with the result. And metaphors of battered women, frankly, that we get in places like Hosea, they speak, uh, you know, the, the, the intention is to, is to speak something theologically profound. And there's, and there's a way of kind of getting at that. But unfortunately, some of it comes to us through metaphors of violence or violent metaphors. Yeah, and um, I'm going to pick up that book. That sounds like a fantastic. We actually do own that book already. Oh, good. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful when you find out you already own a book you need to read? <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think um, it, that is a really important point to make, especially with metaphor, because the Bible has so much value, both as, as it's as it uses metaphor and also, you know, it, there's a lot of other sort of figurative speech, a lot of allegory, a lot of other things that are just kind of floating around in there. And, you know, one of the things we, we learned in the class that Sarah mentioned is we talked about how metaphors emerge in part from our worldview, you know, the, our idea of how the world works. You know, we, we talked a lot about especially um, our metaphors for time and how they involve basically sort of talking about market forces. You know, we spend time, we save time, uh, we do all of these sorts of things. And so time becomes, you know, rather than something a little bit sort of ephemeral and just sort of out there and appreciable, it, it becomes uh, another currency for us. And then- Commodity. Exactly. And so then our idea of how to be in the world is subtly shifted because of the language that we're using. I think uh, another thing that, uh, again, I, I took a different course uh, in seminary on uh, Old Testament, and we focused on the book of Judges. And the one thing that really stuck with, there's a lot in, in that course. The one thing that really stuck with me was the, the way that the writer or writers structured the book and its use of women as a device to show uh, Israel's relationship with God. Jacob Wright was the, the professor at Candler, um, and he's written several books on this now, further explaining this. But at the beginning of Judges, which was really striking, women were in positions of power and they were given names. So if anyone has a name in scripture, they're really important or something's really good um, to be remembered. And then by the end of Judges, they're they're used as sort of fodder and, you know, just violently disposed of weeping and lots of pain. 
Um, and there, and he notes the progression of how that changed throughout the book, especially with the, the judges and how they did their things and the behavior of Israel in that time. I always thought that was really interesting. So um, is the argument that there's a kind of narrative trajectory in judges from something like a more positive portrait of women characters at the beginning and then by the end it's kind of disintegrated is that is that the yeah it's the um the argument he makes is that uh there's a narrative arc and the narrative arc is sort of about the dissolution of society from this idealistic egalitarian you know equal society that you know doesn't need a king into a society that you know needs that kind of authoritarian not needs per se but like like because the society has fallen apart they then give into the temptation to have a king to have that sort of fascistic authoritarian model that that rules over them that taxes them that you know counts them by heads to make sure that that they can keep control over them that sort of thing so the the treatment of women becomes in particular the um canary in the coal mine coal mine the barometer for how good and healthy the society is is what his argument is that's interesting and uh without having read it uh i'll I'll just say that yeah women frequently are victimized and judges (laughs) Um, I mean, on the one hand, you have someone like Deborah, uh, who's a very powerful judge who, um, I mean, one might argue is her, her character is somewhat in a, in a kind of typical, typical gender analysis, somewhat masculinized, you know what I mean? But, and then you have powerful, uh, kind of minor characters like jail who can drive a tent peg through someone's head. But then you have other women who are just outright victimized and, one thinks of Phyllis Tribble's Texts of Terror, which I think we read in the, the class that you were in, John, which a lot of the students in that class really struggled getting through that book just because it was such an up, upfront analysis of, of the violence done to a handful of women in that. But that, that's a rough book to get through. And it's always been ripe for solid kind of feminist womanist analysis for that reason. So I'm glad I'm glad people are doing that. Yeah, you know, I can't help, especially thinking about this conversation about violence. You know, one of the things that comes to mind for me is Richard Dawkins' introduction to the God delusion, uh, which he wrote quite some time ago. But, you know, one of the things he does probably for the first 15 pages or so is rail against these types of depictions of things in the Bible uh, along with the things that are sanctioned, right? Some of the things that we would look at today and think, oh, we, you know, like we don't justify the subordination of women in, you know, marital relationships and stuff like that. But, you know, he he kind of sits there and for a solid like 20 pages, it's like, you know, if this is holy scripture and if this is your moral standard, you know, this this becomes the setup for his argument against any religion at all, right? You know, that's the premise of the God delusion is sort of to pick apart. In my case, I think he's he's got a little bit of a straw man thing going, but, you know, that's how he sets it up as he starts by saying, you know, look, there's some pretty morally horrible stuff going on here. And then he goes from there. It's an ancient argument. I mean, it's, he hasn't invented it. I mean, you know, as soon as, as, soon as non-Christian Greco-Roman writers got their hands on somebody's stories. You know, they could they could see that they that they oftentimes lacked virtue, <laughs> right? So Dawkins is is picking up that argument, and Jewish and Christian theologians have always, I think, needed to come ready to kind of explain what's what's going on when we when we refer to these stories as scripture. Uh, but as as um, I suppose as bad as Dawkins is as a kind of anti-theologian, which I would call him that more than a philosopher, a kind of scientific anti-theologian, it's a, it's a decent argument on its face that um, at least I would agree with the claim that if, if, this is, if this is really your God in the sense that this, we're just going to take this as a literal depiction of a, of a powerful being that just kind of wreaks violence in this place, but doesn't hear. I'm not sure I want to be a part of that either. 
right? right. I, so, don't, I don't think any of us do. Yeah. So may, maybe maybe not the four of us, but I think there are plenty of Christians, unfortunately, that their first priority is simply holding to a certain understanding of Scripture and letting the chips fall rather than doing what I think is the harder work and the more ancient work of having theology and tradition and experience and reason interact with Scripture and moving forward that way. Right. So can you recommend a method or a process by which, you know, we engage these texts then? Because, you know, that's, I think, what we're coming to in this conversation is is the need to have a way of greeting and, and meeting this violence on its, on, you know, honest, uh, objective, clear terms where we can admit both that, you know, perhaps it's problematic or it's horrible in some sense, but also perhaps, you know, there's a reason it is scripture, you know, or there's a reason it's, you know, considered holy. There's a a reason to receive it. Or, you know, maybe there's some mining where we have to reject or, or, you know, really clear away a lot of the stuff to get at the heart of, of a kind of nugget of something that is worth taking away. I'm not sure if any one resource will do all of that, but I will lift up the book that I use when I teach violence in scripture. Kind of our kind of foundational book is by a scholar named Eric Siebert. I'm almost positive it's pronounced Siebert. It's Eric with a C, Siebert, S-E-I-B-E-R-T. It's called The Violence of Scripture. I'm going to start with a couple of things that, if it were a different kind of book, we might improve. One is, it's only about the Old Testament. And he's clear that there's violence in both Testaments. So he's not trying to pull some kind of Marcionite sleight of hand. Real quick, um, can you explain Marcionite for our yeah, listeners? Yeah, so, Mar- thank you. So Marcion is, uh, is, is an ancient Christian that we know, I think, really mainly through his detractors who found, kind of to my point earlier, found much of scripture uh, not worth keeping. <laughs> and he wanted to basically jettison the Old Testament, which was because Christianity at its origin was essentially a Jewish phenomenon. That was a non-negotiable. You couldn't, you couldn't jettison Jewish scripture. And there were some as the as the New Testament canon was taking shape, there were some there were some what came to be New Testament texts that he wanted to do away with too. The the biblical canon he wanted, if memory serves, was a kind of revised version of Luke and a smattering of other things, but it, it didn't amount to much. So that's a good question. And and it's just to just kinda of, just kind of sit sit there for a minute. What we don't want to say, just to make clear, at least what I don't want to say is that the, the problem of violence in Scripture is a strictly Old Testament problem. It, it's, it's, it's a problem in both Testaments, so we don't want to do that. Now, in Siebert's defense, he's not, you, you can't write a book that does everything, right? His specialty is Old Testament. He's clear at the beginning of his book that he's not making that Marcionite move and favoring one Testament over the other. Uh, but for his own purposes of analysis, he's sticking with the Old Testament. So that's one huge caveat. The other, and this is where I get some pushback from students who read the book, that they, they want more theology. And Siebert simply comes, in other words, they want more of a theological justification for why we're even asking this question to begin with. Why is violence problematic in Scripture? And Siebert st- simply starts from a pacifist perspective. I don't know if he's Mennonite or I, I forget, but he simply starts from a pacifist perspective. And he says, he's up front, he says, this is just my starting point. I'm not, if you, if you, wanna, if you want a different kind of book that kind of justifies pacifism, go for it. But this is not the book, it, but that's the starting point for the book. And if you're even remotely interested in the question, it's a really helpful book to read. Uh, you don't even have to be an outright pacifist to benefit from it. But from that starting point, he simply moves through the Old Testament in this case and offers really what is a, a, a real, it's somewhat redundant, but it's a really clearly written textbook, if you will, on the issue of violence in the Old Testament. And he gives strategies to get to John's original question. He gives strategies for how to engage 
violent texts, uh, you know, either individually or ideally in groups uh, communally. So group engagement is the first one then, having somebody to kind of bounce ideas off of, to converse about, and to ask questions. Um, what are some of the other things he does specifically that you really find useful? Yeah, so I'm, I'll just give you his, his at, the, at the risk of, of, of giving like a five-point lecture, I'll just very briefly give you his five steps. So the, the first thing he wants people to do is, and it sounds almost too easy, but you'd be surprised at how much you can get out of this, is name the violence, right? So when you, when you encounter a story that has violence, or sometimes maybe if you're not aware of it, but you're just kind of asking the question, you might find it, name the violence. So just, just describe it in your own words basically. And some of these steps overlap. They're not airtight compartments. The second step is analyze it. And this is where it really helps to have, I think, a kind of group dynamic at work. What's the source of the violence? What's the agent of the violence? Um, is it divine violence? Is it human violence? Is it divinely sanctioned violence? Which is, which is to say, even if humans are doing it, is it something God commands or accepts? Uh, and sometimes that's ambiguous in the text. Another question on analysis is what's motivating it? What's God's motivation? What's Moses's motivation? What's David's motivation? Who benefits from it? And then also kind of basic literary context questions, how it informs or forwards a story, if it's a story or there's any kind of narrative arc. So that's the second step is analyze the violence. The third step is critiquing it, which doesn't, you know, critique here is just kind of um, a little bit of pushback. And Siebert's really good and at least one of his chapters on explaining, and this is one of the things that I think my own students take away from his book is how you can still have a kind of reverential understanding of scripture as holy, but still allow yourself some pushback in terms of what's being described in scripture. So critique is a matter of uh, looking for, is, is there in the text, are there, are there dissenting voices in the text? What does it look like to read the text alongside victims of violence? What does it look like to read the text alongside people who are social, socially kind of um, excluded, maybe victims of social violence? Um, so we critique the violence. And then he has a couple of what I think are a bit more nebulous steps about trying to do something constructively with the violence, which is talk about it more, uh, what, what can we do constructively? Is, the, is there an underlying message, you know, getting back to your point about metaphor, is there an underlining message that a, that a metaphor or a, or a narrative might be trying to convey that we can tease apart? Is there something in, in our own theological tradition or experience that we can use constructively to, to make sense of this text? Uh, so that it's not just for us a story of violence. So those are the four or five-ish steps that I think, um, I mean, I've used those steps in, in small groups in classrooms, and they've worked really well. I haven't used them in churches, but I suspect if you've got a handful, and I know parishes have a, a wide spectrum of kind of opinion, but if you have even just a handful of parishioners that want to go there, there's steps that would be really beneficial, I think, in a parish as well, I think. And I think um, that's really helpful, helping walking folks through a text and encouraging them to engage in a text that they're not used to or used to doing. I think the the process, the process of questioning the text thoroughly as you walk through it and naming, naming especially to folks who suffer violence, is really important. Um, Methodist tradition, um, well, like any other tradition, has the importance of uh, confessing sin, so naming the thing that's wrong. If you don't name it, you can't engage with it, you can't grow with it. So this is just another way to do that. And I don't think a lot of folks who may have been lifelong Christians regularly engage in Scripture in that way. So... I think these sorts of things that um, is brought, are brought up in the book and what you mentioned um, would be really helpful for anyone, and it doesn't require a master's degree to do it. Yeah, Garrett, I think that initial process of naming can be very difficult, especially when it's God we see doing the violence. This past week in the lectionary, we saw Jesus calling the Canaanite woman a dog, and I've seen all sorts of uh, exegetical gymnastics to try to make this a nice thing that Jesus did. 
even to the point of people saying, oh, he was calling her a dog affectionately, like a, like a puppy. It was a sweet thing he was doing. And so I, that even just that initial process of naming is sometimes really difficult for us to do. And, you know, we can kind of, tran- we can soften translations too. Like, oh, I yeah. feel like dog is, is a softened, gentler translation of what we could, you know, we have other words in English. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's not his best moment. And, and thankfully, moments like that are few and far between. But uh, we can't, to your point, just kind of walk around it and do somersaults around it like it didn't happen. Because people in the room hear it, right? <laughs> uh, and they hear it for what it is. Oh, I'm just saying, yeah, there's meaning behind it. And uh, there's a really rich message behind this moment. And when we gloss over it, we don't ever get to that sweet, sweet, nougaty middle. Well, the beautiful thing about that story is that, is that the woman does it back down and stands her ground and forwards, depending on the Mathean versus the Markan version, but I think in both, she forwards a, a coherent and profound argument that kind of moves Jesus on, the, on that question of what seems to be a question of Gentile kind of openness and inclusion. And, and, and the way I spin that in class, I guess, is that this is, she, she is, a, she is a, a kind of active agent and Jesus living into his own messianic vocation, different topics. See, now you've got me on a whole different soapbox. But, <laughs> but to your point, you know, that's, it's a violent metaphor that's used there that she's able to kind of disarm to a degree. I mean, it's still echoing through the centuries. It's a good example of once you say it, you can't unsay it. But she does disarm it to a degree um, as the story unfolds. But it's not surprising. You know, I, I, I spend a, a week on that passage every spring semester. And it's, it's no coincidence that the, the, the women in the class are raising their hands a lot more on that question. You, you, you can hear kind of the breaks being applied, <laughs> you know, with, with them, I think more than this is, I suppose, oversimplifying things, but I think the tendency is for, you, you'll see the male students maybe not noticing the problem as much. Yeah, and I think it's helpful to back up a little bit to our conversation about method and the reading method to recognize that this kind of method of reading is not brand new. It's not something we invented yesterday. Some of the some of the things that we do in terms of scholarship might be a little bit new, especially comparing, you know, archaeological samples and and selections of texts and and comparing how they you know, read versus one another because the old texts, you know, don't always necessarily agree. You were talking earlier about, you know, spending your career figuring out like one word <laughs> in a letter from Paul, right? Comparing those different samples. But, you know, the early church fathers, people like Origen and even like Augustine, they, you know, had methods for reading scripture and they, they read it on different levels, right? You know, Origen had, you know, a sense of like, here's, here's the way I'm going to help you sort of generally grow in your life and your bodily sort of physical well-being. And here's the way I'm going to help you grow psychologically in your life. And then here's the way I'm going to help you have a greater sense of the, the spiritual arc that you're living into. And, and each scripture, you know, he thought had these different senses. And so, so he was really into kind of playing with and massaging you know, the meaning of the text, uh, sometimes going off on kind of ridiculous tangents, but also often finding some really powerful insight that you might not otherwise have if you didn't have permission to, you know, expand and discuss and reflect and explore. Yeah, there, there was a time when it's not so much now, but there was a time not that long ago when biblical scholars used to think that they kind of invented sophisticated and nuanced readings of texts. But but it's always been the case, and there's an increasingly greater awareness among biblical scholars that that's the case. From the very beginning, even prior to Christianity, you had Jewish theologians like Philo of Alexandria who understood that we need to do something, our, our reading strategies need to be something more than just a, a kind of literal interpretation of texts. And uh, some of the best Christian theologians following in Philo's footsteps and um, his 
kind of Hellenistic Jewish footsteps kind of carried on uh, different ways of reading, not just literal, but various kinds of spiritual meanings. Uh, there, there was always kind of various forms of kind of proto textual criticism in the ancient church. But as it, as it comes to around the question of violence, you, you know, I'll, before I, before we circled a couple, one thing I want to say about Augustine, but I would recommend too, in addition to origin, um, Gregory of Nyssa, who was an ancient theologian in present day uh, Asia Minor, who, who has some really splendid uh, writings, uh, kind of commentaries on scripture, the, well known, the, the most well-known being his life of Moses. Exodus being one of the more violent texts of scripture, if you, but he offers some really helpful kind of spiritual readings of some of those violent stories. Uh, and he's a good example of someone at the, really at the very beginning of Christianity who just stops to say, wait a minute, do we really want a God that does this, right? Do we, do we want a God that smites firstborn children in their, in their beds? Do we want a God that kills entire armies, even if we can maybe justify it retrospectively in some kind of militaristic sense? Do we, do, is that the God we want? And so Gregory of Nyssa's Life of Moses is a good example of how from the very beginning, there were some Christians who were asking these questions. And what I'd say about Augustine too, and I lift this up for students, is Augustine had a great, I don't know if Augustine would agree with everything that we've said here, but he had a great reading strategy in his little book on Christian doctrine or on Christian teaching, where he says, if your, if your interpretation of scripture does not foster love of God or love of neighbor, you need to back up and start over. And I just think that's, I mean, to this day, that's just, uh, I think, a really helpful strategy for preachers, not just, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's worth to me, it's worth putting up on a chalkboard at a, in, a, in a Sunday school class in the pastor's study. If your interpretation does not foster love of God or love of neighbor, it can't be a faithful interpretation. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful statement. And it's good to remember that you have these treasures and these nuggets within the tradition already. Because, you know, I, I think we made the point in one of our earlier episodes that, you know, often we're, we're stuck in our sort of denominational bubble, uh, which can then feed into some of these actually very harmful ways of reading the Bible, where, you know, you wind up going from scripture and trying to, you know, excuse bad behavior or, or to, you know, model yourself after bad behavior when it's in there in part, you know, to say, we actually need to reform bad behavior or use this as a, a, a negative example, right? You know, this is a picture of growth rather than something that we should be doing, you know, and there's a lot of moments in scripture like that, where there's, there's sort of a clever thing that the author is doing where, you know, I, I think a lot about um, Paul in particular, where Paul does a lot of very clever things, but people, you know, will, will slice out just the one verse and, you know, sit there and say, this verse says we need to behave this way. And it's like, no, if you keep reading you get a very different message, right, of, of what's going on here. And, and Paul is kind of bringing people who have a certain set of assumptions in to his orbit, and then he's, he's flipping the script on them and saying, well, actually, you know, if you really, you know, believe in what Jesus was doing, you know, what God was doing in Jesus, you know, you're going to wind up with this very mystical sort of sense of both the equality of people you know, in terms of, you know, not dividing them out by nationality or dividing them out by uh, sex or gender or any of these sorts of things, because these are identities that even though we, we traditionally use them to divide people, and there's no really good reason to do that. Yeah, I think denominations often serve or denominations or factions within denominations often serve just as kind of echo chambers for the three or four passages that we want to um, run with. And that's where it helps, I think, also to read in community and to challenge ourselves to read alongside people cultivating friendships. That's a whole nother topic, too. How does friendship work in all of this that challenge us to see different, not just different places in the Bible that we may overlook, but 
different ways of reading the same verses that we've always thought we knew what they meant. And that's, and that's true whether the question is violence in scripture or more general you know, questions of social exclusion and social justice. I just think, you know, if, if my own classrooms are any indication, I think that there are Christians that are really, maybe without even knowing it, hungry for this kind of freedom to explore scripture in ways where they don't feel like they're going to get in trouble or run afoul of the theology police if they say something like, can God really be violent <laughs> or any number of issues? And, and, and John, you know me. I'm, I, I mean, in, in terms of basic creedal theology, I'm about as orthodox as it gets. You know, I'm Nicene, I'm Chalcedonian, I'm, you know, profess that creed, right? That, that's me. But, to, but at the same time, I don't, I don't think theology is a, is a, is a police, is a police state. And I think, I think Christians would probably get into scripture more if they had the, and benefit from it more if they were allowed to be more proactive in asking some of these hard questions about, you know, not just kind of my own personal ethics, but who is this God? Who is this, who is this God (laughs) that we, that, that we worship every week and pray to. And is that him in that text? Is that, or her? Is that, is that God? Is that right? So it's, I just think Christians are hungry for it. I agree. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, but how we typically close each week is just by taking a, a moment for some gratitude by sharing, you know, what's going on in life that's giving us life, that's fueling us, that's, providing us, you know, a sense of optimism for the future or even just kind of helping us get through the day. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to say, you know, what's going on with you that is helping to like fuel your fire, so to speak? Well, I'm thankful for opportunities like this. We were talking before the podcast about how I've just been appointed to an administrative position that comes with a lot of paperwork and some of it's fulfilling. But I have spent, I typically spend my summers kind of challenging myself to do some theology, to write some theology, uh, to read some theology. And that summer hasn't been that typical summer. So this has been a great opportunity for me that I'm thankful for just to kind of try to stretch some of my theological muscles a little bit. So I'm definitely thankful for that. That's great. And congratulations again. Uh, That's the word, really. Do what? I'm just teasing. I said, is that the word? Congratulations. (laughs) All right. What about you, Sarah? So I'm taking a couple of days a week to wake up at 5 a.m. to to get some writing done and to get some creative stuff that I don't feel like I'm making enough time for. So that's been a real blessing. And on a completely related note, our new coffee maker is what I'm grateful for and what it's giving me life. Yeah, I I don't envy you. And uh, I'm glad that you're happy to be married to somebody who doesn't ever get up at 5 a.m. I think it really makes us a power couple. Yeah, I think so. And uh, <laughs> so I guess, you know, what's giving me life right now is just the opportunity to kind of flex some creative muscle a little bit. I'm really enjoying this podcast uh, format and the things that we're working on here and planning here, as well as, you know, doing a little bit of writing as well. It's it's a good chance to just kind of say, you know, I really like learning and experiencing new things. I read a Scientific American article today about how, you know, we want to have a psychologically rich life with lots of experiences, good or bad. And it, it really resonated with me because I'm always, you know, seeking out those new experiences and to learn new things. So, it's been good to have some time to reach out and try to do those new things. What about you, Garrett? It's been a pretty good week this week. Uh, a lot of things um, have been going on. So my escape uh, this week has been music more so. And um, there's a new album out by Coda, the friend. And it's just been a really uplifting album that I've that I've discovered. So um, he's a really great artist. Um, I think he's located or originates out of the Bronx. um, And he's just a really good spiritual rapper on like black experience and black sort of excellence. And it's just been really great to hear that voice. 
Um, so that's been carrying me through this week. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I've been doing back catalog stuff where I've recently discovered that a lot of bands that I was really into during my like middle school to college period have been putting out new stuff, especially several bands that have broken up like motion city soundtrack. So, um, you know, music has been like, it's been a weird and sort of wild ride. So I'm glad you're getting some life out of that too. I'll have to check out that album. What's the album and the artist again? Uh, it's Coda the friend and let me pull up the album real fast. Yeah. The, it, the album's called Everything uh, by Code of the Friend. It's, it's a really great one. And my favorite album by him so far is Photo. And they're just really great albums to check out. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Driggers, for joining us today. Any final thoughts before you go? No, I'm, I appreciate this podcast. I'm glad you've got it up and running. I'll definitely be sharing it. Make sure you, you send it to me. And uh, I'll, I'll keep listening to some more podcast too it's a great format isn't it and i hope you're having fun doing it he is <laughs> we are yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are having a lot of fun doing it yeah i mean i th- i think it's got to be it's got to make its way at some point into classrooms and instructions as some kind of as a, as a medium for learning somehow uh, whether you're making them or listening to them or yeah yeah i actually read an article not long ago about a high school teacher who is teaching an entire class through podcasts. His whole premise is he sits the students down and the idea is he's trying to teach them how to learn on their own. And so he sits them down and he says, choose a podcast, listen to it regularly, take notes, and then, you know, write me a paper or give me a report of some kind. You know, the, the idea being there's so much information out there especially now that's really good, high quality, well-presented stuff and available for free, essentially. You know, you might have to listen to an ad or two, but then, you know, you've got people who are just kind of just putting stuff out there and doing the research just for the passion of it. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logosish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, to be a guest on the podcast, or to suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. That's logosishpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us to get the word out about all the stuff that we are working on right now, and we always look forward to hearing your feedback as well. Have a wonderful week.